You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Now that's a first series of the year in the books, baby. And it's a victory, three out of four for the New York Mets. We've got a victory edition of the Rico Bronia. I apologize. I'm on location. I don't even want to explain where I am. It's way too complicated. The bottom line is I'm not in New York. I'm in my car, pulled over on the side of the highway. But like the old Mike and the Mad Dog theme would say, they'll get you the sports any way that they can. We get you the Rico any way that we can. So I apologize. But very good weekend. Mets win three out of four against the Marlins. Obviously, we did a Rico right after opening day, so we won't spend too much time on that game. But we'll certainly talk about the other three games. The first thing I want to know, because I didn't do it, and I know some of my fellow Met fans did. I know that my longtime radio partner, Joe Beningo, did it. And that is overreact to what happened on Friday night. Was there overreaction, Pete? Did you overreact? Were you basically saying, oh, the offense sucks. This is what we've been worried about. Billy Epler should be fired. They have no right-handed DH. Everybody sucks. Like, I noticed that on social media. I noticed that from Joe. I noticed that from some of my friends on my Mets text chat. Were you overreacting to the second game of the year, Pete? I was disappointed I didn't overreact. I didn't think the sky was falling. The the concern that we do have was was highlighted. Again, right-handed DH, what's going on there? So, yeah, I I was a little upset about it, but and and then not to mention between that and the Rangers losing, so I was like, oh, this is a bad bad (laughs) Friday night. But, no, I was not overreacting to to the second game of the season. I went the other way, actually. (laughs) Okay. The second game of the year sucked, right? And actually, let's start with the Friday game. We'll talk about all three games. We'll look ahead to the Milwaukee series. We'll talk about how Brett Beatty has exerted some major pressure on Eduardo Escobar, obviously the debut of Kodai Senga. But the reason why Friday for me, I wasn't crazy despite the Mets scoring no runs until the ninth inning when Pete Alonso hit that home run right after John Curtis gave up the insurance home run to Jazz Chisholm. So it was a, a typical frustrating game. When you finally break through and score, it's basically an inning too late because your bullpen gave up a run. The reason why I wasn't like overly concerned is I look back at that game and the New York Mets lost because the Miami Marlins played great defense. I mean, think about it. Think about a few moments in this game. Pete Alonso in the second inning drives one against Jesus Lazardo to deep right center field. And here's Jorge Soler making a leaping catch. And by the way, the beauty of Jorge Soler, who won this game single-handedly for the Marlins, is he made two incredible plays defensively and then DH'd for the rest of the series. <laughs> so the one guy who stuck it to the Mets defensively 
never even got a chance to play defense on Saturday and Sunday. But he makes the incredible catch against Pete Alonso. He makes really the play of the game when the Mets had a runner on second base with two outs and Starling Marte hits that line drive to right field. It looks like it's going to tie the game, and he makes another diving catch. There was also, I think, one other diving play in this play, in this game. Uh, the Marlins played good defense, and which, which makes no sense because – at least in the early going, you would figure with so many guys out of position, the Marlins will struggle defensively. It felt like one of those games, and you're going to have a bunch of these throughout a regular season, where you're almost just predestined to lose. Everything went against you. You hit a couple of hard-hit balls. It didn't work out for you. You failed in clutch situations. Pete Alonso tapping out when the Mets had a guy on base in the fourth inning was one spot. Uh, they had, obviously, the bases loaded in the sixth when Alonso flied out. Uh, to end the sixth inning against, I think it was Chargeois who came in the game. So the game sucked. Like, I'm not here to tell you it wasn't frustrating, but I walked away from it thinking to myself, all right, it's one game. The Marlins made every play defensively. I thought David Peterson was really good, so I took that positive out. Tommy Hunter comes out of the bullpen. He looks really good. The one negative was John Curtis giving up the Jazz Chisholm home run. And I don't know, I wasn't really that I'm disappointed they lost but I wasn't like disgusted or panicking and then I kind of get the sense on social media and from my man Joe at 10 a.m. on Saturday this offense isn't any good this lineup's not any good this team's not any good it was the second freaking game of the season now obviously they went out and lose three out of four to the Marlins and don't score any runs I still wouldn't panic but I would understand it more but losing the second game of the year even as bad as they looked offensively, was no reason to panic. And I certainly noticed a little bit of that after just the second game of the season. So I will I will disagree with you on this one thing. I didn't think Peterson pitched all that great. I think the defense by the Mets got him out of a ton of jams. I think the defense, and that's kind of what I took out of the Friday game, where it's like, you're going to have those games. The Marlins actually played a crappy defense all weekend long. I mean, they looked lost. Chisholm couldn't make catches. Segura's tripping over to shortstop and out, you know, trying to catch a ball out going to left field. It was a sloppy defense by the Marlins, except for Friday. They played a tight That's game. The Mets. Right. And the Mets played just as tight, too. I mean, Alonzo was making snabs at first base. McNeil made that great heads of play to get the runner out at home after it hit off Alonzo's glove. Lindor's making plays. So overall, where I, I don't think Peterson pitched well, but the defense looked stellar okay. by the Mets. The defense was great. I thought Francisco Lindor had a tremendous defensive weekend. Lindor's been open about how he's kind of glad the shift is gone because it's going to show off more of the athleticism of middle infielders. Lindor backed it up the first weekend of the year. So they absolutely played great defense on Friday. But here's why you're dead wrong. And I guess this is the thing I love. Uh, DeGrom used to do this all the time. When you don't have your best stuff and there are guys on base, can you make the big pitch when you need to? Take a look at what David Peterson did Friday. First inning, gives up the triple to Garrett Cooper. That shouldn't have been a triple. That was Starling Marte dropping that ball in right field. There's a runner on third. There's two outs. He gets Chaz Chisholm to tap back to the mound. Second inning, gives up the home run to Soler. Okay, you're down one nothing. He puts two guys on base in a row, Gurriel and Fortes. Two on, one out. Peterson's on the ropes. He strikes out John Birdie. He gets a rise, who the Mets basically never got out this entire weekend, to ground out to first base. Same thing in the third inning. Puts a guy on base, gets a huge strike out of Jazz Chisholm 
before Lindor makes that great leaping catch. Then in the fifth inning, I thought this was his most impressive work. He puts the first two guys on base. There's two on and nobody out. Gene Segura is giving you a hell of an at-bat. I thought the game was going to be broken open right there. It's a nine-pitch at-bat. He strikes out Segura, then gives up a base hit to Garrett Cooper, and then you get that play or on the base hit to Garrett Cooper. I think it was McNeil makes the great play at home to cut down the lead run. So you're right. The defense certainly backed him up. But then after that, he gets Jazz Chisholm to tap out the first base. So what Peterson did, even though he put nine guys on base over five innings, no doubt, I'm not telling you he dominated, but he was able to show balls, make the big pitch when he needed to. And sometimes you just got to judge somebody based on the results. He gave up one run in five innings. I'll ask you this question. What's a better performance? What we saw from Peterson on Friday, where you're putting a ton of guys on base, but you're making the big pitch when you need to. And yeah, your defense is helping you out. I certainly acknowledge that. Or a guy who dominates, but in his last inning of work, gives up a three-run home run. I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but I'm saying it's just about results. He gave up one freaking run. He kept him in the game. So I and I understand your point, and I will I will ride with it, and I'll say you're right. That to be able to battle through, I will take that rather than blowing up in that last inning and give up a game-winning home run or whatever. However, I will say this. You compared him to DeGrom. DeGrom has that track record of dominating, dominating, dominating. And then we have those off games where he still battles and gets through it. That was a best Peterson's version of DeGrom battling. However, we haven't seen the domination from Peterson. And that's no. where I need to see before I start giving him a lot of credit. No, no. I'm giving him credit for one game. All right, he kept them in the game. They had a chance to win that game if they were ever able to muster up a big hit. And they didn't have a lot of opportunities. I guess the Alonzo bases loaded situation is the one that jumps out at you. And we mentioned Jorge Soler made two incredible plays, specifically the one against Marte, because the one against Alonzo early may not lead to anything. You never know. The one with Marte ties the game up. That is a tie baseball game going into the bottom of the eighth inning. And, and who knows? The same result could happen. John Curtis can give up a home run to Jazz Chisholm. And who the hell knows? Mets may still lose. But that Marte line drive was the baseball game. You know, Jorge Soler made a great play. It is funny. The Marlins defensively overall weren't great, but they made a lot of key defensive plays throughout this series. I think we saw it catch up to them by Sunday. Uh, the Kodai Senga game when Jazz Chisholm is basically letting a line drive go right past him. <laughs> but what was interesting about the first game of this series, is, or I'm sorry, this first game that we're talking about, the Friday night game, game two of this series, is it's our first example, and we had two in this series, we'll get one more in the Brewers series, of how Buck is going to handle his lineup against a left-handed pitcher. So what we saw, and this is why we're not going to be able to define DH performance by looking at DH numbers, is that Mark Canna DH'd both games against lefties, the Friday game, the Sunday game. But he's not being added to the lineup. The guy who's being added to the lineup is Tommy Pham. So that's the guy we have to look at. We always knew, because Pham's good defensively, and because you may want to get Tim LaCastro in the games, that the right-handed DH isn't going to be a singular person. It's going to be a guy getting into the lineup, and then Canna DHs. And I think as this week goes on, we'll see it in the Brewers series, we may see a game in which uh, Starling Marte DHs or Brandon Immo DHs or even Francisco Lindor DHs. But we saw Tommy Pham inserted into both games. Game one, he goes 0 for 2, and everybody's cursing him out. It's a continuation of spring training. He sucks. 
This is your right-handed option. It's the end of the world. By Sunday, we got guys picking up Tommy Pham for their fantasy team. I know Pete already did that. He's like, let me go pick this up. <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I, and here's the funny thing is, though, like you said, he's the quote-unquote the guy that's being replaced or put in for the DH, but he still not didn't get a home run as a DH. <laughs> like, that's the thing that boggles my mind. Kind of plays DH two days, and he doesn't get a home run as a DH, but he gets a home run when he, uh, you know, is playing the outfield. That's <laughs> why we're going to be very careful on the Rico when we analyze the right-handed DH stats. It's actually not going to be the right-handed DH stats. It's going to be the guy who's playing because there's a lefty on the mound. So to me... When I look at Friday's game and I look at Sunday's game, it's not Mark Canna, the DH. It's how did Tommy Pham do? On Friday, Tommy Pham was 0 for 2. On Sunday, Tommy Pham was Roberto Clemente. We saw how Buck used his bench. Daniel Vogelback, he's your pinch hitter in the eighth inning. He actually came through with a double. Luis Guillerme is your pinch hitter for Pham in the eighth inning once the Marlins go to a right-handed pitcher so that you can get those left-handed bats in there. Uh, Omar Narvaez is hitting, though. So you may have to start considering Narvaez as one of the bats you use. It's early, so we don't want to get nuts about it. But we did see him go Guillerme for Pham in the eighth inning. He grounded out. Vogelback for Nito in the eighth inning. He actually doubled, and that was the setup before Starling Marte lined out. So Friday, uh, disappointing loss. The offense does nothing. The game takes two hours and nine minutes. (laughs) Which... You have to admit, if you're going to lose a game in which you can't freaking hit, wouldn't you rather lose in two hours and nine minutes as opposed to three hours and nine minutes? You have to admit that. Yeah, it, the game's flying. It's good. But you you can't you, – you actually can't get up and walk around. You can't, like, take a break. You actually have to be <laughs> locked in. And that's – I'm going to tell you right now, it's actually a negative. It's actually a negative that there's, it's at, the pace is so quick. Because you don't have to – like, I went to the game on on Thursday, the Yankee game, and I stepped away to take my kid to a, get a hot dog. I missed, like, three innings. It, it the, the pace is flying. It is. But you got to remember, this is the pace of baseball the way it used to be. So it's not some weird abnormal pace that we've never seen before. This is the way the game used to fly let's say 20 years ago. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to Free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage in helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. 
After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, one other thing from Friday, and we'll get to the game on Saturday, the game on Sunday. First play of the game, Brandon Nimmo hits a ground ball to shortstop. He clearly beats it. I don't think there's any question. The first base umpire, David Rackley, calls him out. Buck Showalter challenges it. And even after we see that Nimmo is safe, the umpires don't overturn it. And that was a theme from this weekend. We saw two plays in which unequivocally, the other one was the Pete Alonzo play. And I, I apologize. I forget which day it was. I don't think it was the same Friday night game because they didn't It was Saturday. Them. It was Saturday. Yeah. Pete Alonso is clearly safe, or I'm sorry, the first baseman comes off the bat. That, and it's not even particularly close. And it was Garrett Cooper who was playing first base. Mets challenge it, clear as day. Mets are going to win the challenge. And twice now, we've seen MLB review uphold calls that are clearly wrong. And I'm getting a little worried, Pete, because this reminds me of the NFL when the NFL basically had the edict of pass interference. We're not over, over gonna, we're not going to overrule anything unless it's over-the-top bad. Now, I didn't think the Nimmo one was over-the-top bad, but he clearly was safe. The Alonzo one, Pete, was over-the-top bad because Cooper's foot is not on the base. It's clear as day. 100%. And I couldn't believe it. And you listened to – I don't know if you were watching, listened to where you were watching the game or whatever, but you listened to Gary, Keith, and Ron, and they're just like, oh, his foot's so off. It's going to be easily overturned. And when the, when the umpires say it stands, they were like, what the hell? What did you just watch? What did we just witness? What do we experience just now that they called that safe? That they, I mean, they called that, that, that the play stands. To me, that's it's egregious. It, it is – you're right. If it's some play on the MLB saying we really don't want to turn, turn over plays as much, it's going to be a bad look all season long. It's going to be scary. You got to fix what's clearly wrong. That's my attitude. Now, I know they're trying to speed up reviews. So one of the new wrinkles to this year is that the manager immediately has to signal we're thinking about reviewing it. They've got 15 seconds. And then they either review it or they don't review it. And that's totally fine. And I think the reason they want to do that is because they don't want kind of the, the nitpicking of challenges. But these are nitpicks. Like, both calls were wrong. To me, the second one was more egregious than the first one. So if you're going to review it, you got to fix it if the call's wrong and both calls were wrong. Right. And then, uh, you know, we knew that the Pete Alonso, again, Pete Alonso was totally off. And later on in the game, they made a play at first base and Alonso swiped uh, and got the, basically got the runner out, I think, at first base. But they had no more challenges. The, the, challenges, were, the challenges were done. So that's the other thing. So when Buck uses that challenge early, on Friday night, he's done because if there's, and that's why I think you got to be more strategic, even if you think, because you never know what the first batter of this game is going to do. If you overturn a ground out into an infield single, I acknowledge that could turn into a seven run inning. Baseball is a crazy game, but do you really want to risk not having another challenge for a maybe bigger play in the fifth or sixth inning? So I kind of disagree with Buck that he even, through that challenge, through the proverbial challenge flag, there is no challenge flag, but you guys know what I mean. I, I don't know if it's worth it when you do it at that point in the game, but I, we got to keep an eye on this, not just for the Mets, but throughout Major League Baseball. Are they not going to overturn calls? 
Is that what we're noticing from the first four-game series of the year where there were two egregious mistakes or one egregious mistake, one mistake, and they never fixed it? That, that we have to keep an eye on. Now, I'm also very curious, as we look at game two of this series, Mets are one and one on the season. It feels like a game they better win, or Met fans are going to panic all over the place. God forbid Edward Cabrera shuts him down for six innings. It's panic city. But you, and we're going to find out if Pete Hoffman's a hypocrite right now. It's going to be fascinating, okay? We're going to play a game. Is Pete Hoffman a hypocrite? You ready? So Pete and I just had a little uh, discussion about David Peterson, where I thought he pitched really well, showed some balls, battled through five innings. And Pete's like, nah, not impressed. He was bailed out by his defense. Okay. On Saturday afternoon, how did Tyler McGill pitch, in your opinion? Go ahead. In my opinion, I guess I'm going to be a hypocrite because I thought he pitched great. <laughs> I thought he pitched phenomenal. I thought he had, he got what we got what we needed out of Tyler McGill, and I think he pitched a good game, didn't allow a lot of base runners, and that's what I was looking for. What? No, 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 no. Tyler McGill allowed eight base runners through five innings. David Peterson allowed nine base nine. runners. Nine in five innings. <laughs> Tyler McGill allowed two runs. Both came on the Nick Fortes two-run home run. David Peterson allowed one run. Okay? I would argue their outings were very similar. Okay? Very similar. Peterson put one more guy on base, but he also allowed one fewer run to score. Both pitched five innings. Both kept their teams in the game. How could you say McGill was considerably better? What the hell would it be based on other than the fact that you're a McGill stand? So, okay, where I will say this is the defense, I think, really saved Peterson a lot from big from big innings. So I don't think the defense on Saturday had to make bigger plays. I really don't think. Like, I mean, Alonzo made some great – and we'll get into the Alonzo thing in a second because I said something on air last night, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back, and I'm totally comfortable with it. But Alonzo play at first base, he's an MVP-type player now. He is elevated his game so much that he should be considered to be the MVP of the National League this year already in three games. But that being said, though, I think that they the defense need to help Peterson out a lot more. The defense was good on Saturday, but if it wasn't for the defense on Friday, Mets might have got blown out. All right. So here's again why you're wrong. Tyler, and by the way, I think both Peterson and McGill showed balls. I'm happy with both guys. There's no inconsistencies and I love the fact that both guys actually did put guys on base because they showed the guts to fight through it obviously ideally you want six scoreless innings nobody's on base we all understand that but I think both Peterson and McGill showed a lot of balls in their performances in Tyler McGill's case right out of the gate he's in trouble in the first inning gives up a leadoff hit to Luis Arise, who was on base 150 times this weekend. He walks Jazz Chisholm, two on, two out, big ground out against Brian De La Cruz. He gives up the two-run home run to Fortes in the second inning, fights through it, gets a big ground out of Jorge Soler. Fourth inning, gives up a one-out double, gets through it against the eight and nine hitters. Fifth inning, puts the leadoff guy on base. Then, and this is the moment of the game, gives up the double to Chaz Chisholm. They're second and third, two outs. The Mets are nursing a 4-2 lead, and Brian De La Cruz hits a ball in the hole at shortstop. It is an infield hit against, I would say, 70% of the shortstops in Major League Baseball. Watch this one, Pete. You like it. If Anthony Volpe is playing shortstop, it's an infield hit. 
I'm just kidding, Yankee fans. But Francisco Lindor shows poise, relaxed, makes a great play, a perfect throw, nails De La Cruz at first base. Tyler McGill himself is bear-hugging Lindor, saying thank you. That's an infield hit. 4-3, two outs, first and third. Gene Segura coming up. He's probably out the game. So I thought defense, I don't want to say saved him because saved him maybe over the top, but made a very important defensive play to keep it at four to two and to get Tyler McGill out the game after throwing 93 pitches. Both guys, David Peterson and Tyler McGill, did their jobs. If they go five innings and allow one run or two runs for the next month, that's a victory. That is a huge win because that's realistically all you're really asking for. As much as we'd love to see seven scoreless innings, I'm not asking for that. Go pitch five innings, keep your team in the game, and if your team scores runs like they were able to do on Saturday when the Mets scored how many runs? One, two, three, four, six runs, you will win a baseball game. Good performance by both guys. No, and I, I get that. You're right. I, I, maybe I'm giving a, McGill a little bit more credit. I just felt like the, the defense on Friday – there, there was bigger moments that the defense really – I mean, the play at the play for McNeil was impressive. Yeah. And then without that, the, the game starts to get a little bit out of hand. So, McGill, it never felt like the game was going to get out of hand. Maybe that's the observation that I had. You're right. The base runners were pretty much similar. The, the other thing we saw, we certainly saw it on Saturday in game three of this series. We set, definitely saw it Sunday. We've seen it throughout this four-game series against Miami is how good this bullpen is. So, on Saturday – we got our first look at Dennis Santana, and he was great. Struck out two guys. We saw him again on Sunday, the only med pitcher to go back-to-back so far this year. But Santana was great. One, two, three inning. There was a great defensive play by, by your boy, Pete Alonzo, who I thought played very good defensively. Here's the thing I question about Pete. Uh, it's not a criticism of him. It's a criticism of the world, okay? Because I'm with you. If Pete has a year in which he hits 40 home runs, drives in 130 runs, and he's the best player, and let's say the Mets win 95 games, of course he should be an MVP candidate. If his defense continues to improve, and I thought his defense last year was fine. That's the way I would phrase it. It was fine. Was he a gold glover? No, but I thought he was fine. For whatever reason, the defensive metrics, the war stat, have just never been kind to Alonzo. We spent some time talking about this last year on Rico Bronia, that for whatever reason, his war doesn't represent how good of a player he actually is with us getting to watch him every day. So what I wonder about, and this is going to be the key, Pete, to him ever winning an MVP, because it's not about me and you. It's about these dopey voters. Will the war stat be kinder to Pete Alonso? Will they recognize that his defense is better? And it's only been four games, but yes, it looks better. I expect it to be better. Well, and a lot of people were, were criticizing yesterday because I actually had this take. I was like, he's better than – he could be arguably better than Goldschmidt this year. Gold. If you look at his offensive production, first off, you just say, what's the key stat in baseball? Run scored. Well, Pete Alonso led the league in RBIs last year in 131. He's clutch. He's a clutch hitter. Again, on Saturday, he had a clutch two uh, a RBI double. It wasn't a home run that he hit. He's finding a way to put the bat on ball and scoring runs at opportune times. He, so he's he, so drawing a lot of walks, which is going to help, too through this four-game series. I think you get on base. Obviously, home runs, RBIs, we get it. You get on base. You improve your defense. Absolutely. But we're, we're four games into the year. Let's see what kind of year he actually has. 
Uh, but so far, so good. I'm certainly not complaining. The bullpen was great on Saturday. Dennis Santana, one, two, three inning. Drew Smith runs into trouble. But look at this. Look at this. The New York Mets have a left-handed reliever out of their bullpen that they trust. What a freaking concept. So when Jazz Chisholm comes up in the seventh inning with two men on base, tying run, 5-2 game, the Mets don't have to look at Joely Rodriguez and say, ah, screw it. Let's just keep this bad matchup in and hope that Drew Smith gets an out. Let's go to Adam Adovino, even though he's better against righties. They went to Brooks Raleigh, calmly got Jazz Chisholm to ground out. One batter, one out, big spot call today. Adam Adovino put a couple of guys on base, but he's able to get through the eighth inning. And then David Robertson with a very neat and tidy ninth inning, double play to end it. The Met bullpen looked very good on Saturday. Looked okay on Friday. I mean, the only the negative was obviously the home run that John Curtis gave up. And then you look at Sunday, Dennis Santana again, John Curtis, Stephen Nagosik. The Met bullpen so far off to a great start. And here's my one, it's not a negative, but it's, it's something you've said, Pete, already. You look at the depth of this bullpen. You look at Raleigh and Robertson and Adovino and even Dennis Santana. And you say to yourself, could you imagine if Diaz was healthy? Could you imagine all of those guys just trying to get to the ninth inning? Now, so far, David Robertson's been great in the ninth inning, so I'm not complaining. But if you had Edwin Diaz, you're pushing everything back in inning. But so far, one series against a light hitting Marlin team, very good start from this bet bullpen. Love to see it. Yeah, and I know you say light hitting, but they – they do have some special players on the team. It, like Luis Arai is going to be a pain in the ass for a long time. He is so good. I mean, I did how many? Did we get him out three times all all series? <laughs> he's good, man. He's he was great last year with Minnesota, and it took the Marlins a lot to go get him. I totally why get why they would want to do it. He's one of those guys where he's impossible to strike out. Very difficult to strike out. He puts the bat on the ball. He's a single hitter, and I think that sometimes there's this negativity towards single hitter. Wow, he doesn't hit home runs. If you can hit 330 and you're drawing walks and you're not striking out, you're an incredibly valuable player. And you're right. I mean, he he was a beast in this series. So uh, to your point, one thing that we haven't discussed yet, in four games, have you noticed more hits because of the lack of shift? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like Because the one thing I've noticed is that Teams are shading their shortstops up the middle against a lot of these left-hand hitters. So for a while, a ball's hit back up the middle, and we would assume base hit. And for the last few years, we haven't because we just figure the shortstop's going to be standing there because of the shift. You can't do the exaggerated shift, but can you still have your shortstop basically behind the bag, essentially? Yeah. So I think a lot of those base hits are still being taken away. Um, I don't know. I... It's funny. Over the first four games of this season, I've paid attention, obviously, to the pitch clock, to the aggressiveness on the base paths. I have not sat there thinking, and maybe I should, maybe I will as the season goes on. Is that a base set with the shift? Is that not a base set with the shift? What's that with the shift? What's that with the shift? I haven't given a lot of thought, and, I, and I'm, I'm wondering why. Like, why has that not gone through my brain? And maybe it's because we went so many years without it where there wasn't a rule, but we didn't see exaggerated shifts for every single player. So I guess it feels more normal for it not to be there. 
And also because of what I just mentioned, that you've got shortstops right behind the bag anyway. So you're still cutting off those base hits. Those balls right back up the middle, you're still cutting off. Have you noticed anything? No, I've actually paid attention to some bigger hits in big-time spots. I'm going, like again, like Alonzo hit down the line for the RBI double on Saturday night's game. Like, that was going to be a base hit no matter what. So in certain spots where there's been big-time hits, those are still hits. It ha- it hasn't changed anything, uh, and I think if anything, the the defense has gotten better. Like we talked about with Lador making those plays, plays are still being made, so it hasn't really affected too much with the lack of shift. We we also, at least for the Mets and their opponents, we haven't seen the crazy shift taking the left fielder and putting him in short right. So far, the only guy I've seen that with is Joey Gallo. That teams have done that, or one team has done that for Joey Gallo. But I'm also thinking that that's not going to be as beneficial as teams think. Because first of all, if you're putting your left fielder in short right field, it's a guy not used to playing that position. So unless it's the Yankees with Oswaldo, who's used to playing everywhere, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if the Mets were doing it, Mark Tanna would be over there. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So we haven't seen that shift yet. But yeah, so through these four games, I didn't even think about it. I really didn't even notice it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. All right, so let's get to the Kodai Senga game, the highly anticipated major league debut of Kodai Senga. I remember watching his first spring training game. And for anyone who watched it, he put the, the first three guys on base. He loaded the bases right out of the gate and fought through it against the St. Louis Cardinals. And I remember even saying on the Rico, whenever we did it, hey, that was pretty impressive. Who knew he was going to do it again? The Mets scored two runs in the first inning on that weird play. Jeff McNeil with the little raw, little ground ball, the throw to first base, wild, allows a second run to score. Mets take an early 2-0 lead. Great, kind of take the pressure off of Kodai Senga. Gives up the leadoff hit to Luis Arise. Everyone has. Throws a wild pitch. Gives up an RBI double to Jorge Soler. Walks Jazz Chisholm. Walks Havagol Garcia. So he puts not the first three guys on base. The first four guys on base. Hello there. And then we see Kodai Senga go to work. The ghost fork ball was working. He strikes out Gurriel where Gurriel loses his bat. He strikes at Jesus Sanchez and then gets lucky because John Birdie get a line drive, but the Mets positioned it perfectly right at Starling Marte. I'm thinking, okay, deep breath from Kodai, leadoff walk to start the second. And from that moment on, the leadoff walk in the second inning, we saw everything we dreamt of with Kodai Senga. 
He gets the next two guys out, including a rise to ground into a double play, strikes out two guys in the third inning, I think both with the ghost fork, one, two, three, fourth, gets the first two outs in the fifth, strikes out Jorge Soler, and then strikes out the first batter in the sixth inning before Buck pulls him at 89 pitches, which I got no problem with. Remember, he threw 36 pitches in that first inning. Now, ironically, so did Taylor Rogers, Trevor Rogers, but still, it was a very long first inning. Thank you, pitch clock. But Kodai Senga, recovering from the first four guys getting on base, he ends up giving up one run in five and a third innings. He ends up putting up six guys on base, so less than Peterson and McGill, but very different than those guys because once Senga settled down, and who knows what it was, the nerves of his first major league game, uh, whatever it was, once he relaxed, we got to see what we were excited about with this guy. He looked great to me, very successful major league debut for Kodai Senga. Yeah, and I, th- I think the the nerves were built because that first inning, that first half inning was so long with Trevor Rogers just being not being able to find the strike zone too. And you could see Senga just like pacing back and forth. Yeah. Like the anticipation was there. So I was a little nervous. I, I was I was very scared for that first half inning with Senga. Going like, what did we just do? Um, <laughs> but as soon as he struck out, got the three outs in a row to end of the first inning, he settled down, and you you just like, oh, my goodness, we have maybe one of the best pitchers in the MLB right now, if this guy is as good as he could be. Long term, I was never going to be concerned, even if it was a disaster. So before the game started, I was looking back at some of the past major league debuts of Japanese imports. Hideo Nomo, who was – you know, first onto the scene in 1995, walked 13 guys in his first 13 innings. True story. So he didn't get off to a great start in the major leagues. Now, some guys did. Yu Darvish's first performance was very similar to Senga's five innings, one run. Masato Yoshi, for us, pitched seven scoreless innings. I was more concerned, where are they going to go to get through this game? Like, Kodak Senga has a horrible major league debut. It is not the end of the world as much as we may over-exaggerate it. Okay, there'll be a second major league game, and hopefully he relaxes and he bounces back. I was more thinking, okay, he's thrown 30-plus pitches. This game could be busted open. Who's their long man? Like, is Steven Nagosik going to come in and pitch three innings? Is Tommy Hunter going to come in and pitch three innings? And not only would it make this game difficult to win, but it puts a lot of pressure on Carlos Carrasco Monday, Max Scherzer on Tuesday, David Peterson Wednesday, Tyler McGill Thursday. The Mets don't have an off day which I've loved. I've loved this quirk that the Mets are basically playing every single day. But that was my concern. Like the short term of how are they going to get through today? How are they going to get through the next week? But that was great. Especially him throwing the ghost for it. Cause there was concern that if it's causing finger discomfort, is he going to shelve it? Well, if he shelves it, who is he? He's a fastball slider guy. Well, how good is he? We saw his put away pitch today. We saw the ghost fork ball. And it was tremendous. Uh, that was a great debut. It was encouraging. The Met offense was blah. They got those two runs early. Didn't do anything until the fifth inning. When they finally did it, it was Tommy Pham hitting a, <laughs> Tommy Pham hitting a two-run home run. Tommy Pham driving in that RBI double, even though it was really a Jazz Chisholm screw-up. Basically, the offense on Sunday was the Tommy Pham show. So you could take your spring training – you can take those crappy numbers. You can take his old for two on Friday, and at least for one day, Pete, because it probably won't last. But for one day, we can all throw it out the window. Tommy Fam, offensive hero. 
Tommy Pham has arrived, and it's amazing that they figured that out. Brandon gave they gave Marte the day off yesterday. They gave Nimmo the day off today, which allowed Pham to have that center field uh, role and lead off the game. And it was listen, it's going to be interesting to see how they work this out. But we're we're going to get this to to this a little bit. The kids playing in the minors are going to really make us look at these guys like Pham, like Vogelback, like some of these other players. There's going to be a fire that's going to be lit under these guys if they want to stay in the major leagues. All right, let's address it because that's the other big story coming out of these four games. Eduardo Escobar did not hit. He's not great defensively. He did not have a good spring training. And he also is coming off a year last year in which he was did nothing April, May, June, July, and most of August. He had a huge September. He deserves a lot of credit for that. I think he salvaged his overall numbers. And like I mentioned before, he was very important to the Mets' success in September. They would have collapsed without him. Now, you could argue they collapsed anyway. He salvaged the collapse, specifically that Marlin game, the final game they played before they went to Atlanta. But the pressure's on. Pete, you're right. And the pressure's on for a very good reason. Brett Beatty is ready to play at the major league level. I know that. You know that. I think everybody knows that, except for the one guy who counts, Billy Eplin, who gave us this crap about a week ago. Well, Nolan Arenado. Well, Rafael Devers. All these excuses for why Beatty isn't here. Well, two things could happen that are going to cause Billy Epler to have to say, well, maybe I made a mistake. Escobar's failures and Beatty raking. Brett Beatty has the huge Saturday, hits the grand slam, drives in five runs. Alvarez had a good day too. So did Vientos. What I'm curious about, and I don't know the answer. Now we could all give our opinions, which is right now. That would be our opinions. But how much time are you going to give Beatty to tear it up and Escobar to struggle before you do something? Because the mistake is to wait to lose. Don't wait to lose. If the Mets are winning games, I don't want to hear this attitude of, well, we're winning. Why mess around? No, 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 no. That's when you want to call up a Brett Beatty or a Mark Fiantos. You don't want to wait until you've lost six out of eight. You're not scoring any runs. So what I don't know, and none of us know, because Billy Epler will never answer it, is what are you waiting for? For me and you and everybody listening, I'm sure if I put a poll out there, they would say, call up Beatty right now, move Escobar to the bench. And we can go back to a plan we talked about a week or two ago, which is Beatty's your third baseman against lefties and righties, and Escobar's your right-handed DH. And you call it a day. And that's what you do. Are they ready to do that? Are they willing to do that? And when are they going to be willing to do that? Because that's the real question. You know, how long are you going to wait and have Eduardo Escobar underperform? And I I don't think he's going to be awful. Like, I think Escobar is going to hit. But that's not the point. Beatty's your future. And if Beatty's ready, call him up now. And the same goes with Vientos. I, I, I don't know. I, I'd love to sit here and guess, but how could we figure it out when Billy Epler's given this BS about, well, he needs more games. They need to be seasoned. He's ready. They're both ready. Well, and here's the thing, though, is you could even see that Escobar's 
it's already getting to him. Like, I don't know what – I'm not sure if the, him shaving had something to do with him trying to get better luck <laughs> in the beginning. I mean, I, seriously, it, it's stupid idiosyncrasies that maybe these guys have superstitions or whatever. But you can see it. He struck out again today, and he – I could just see his emotion. I know he's a great clubhouse guy. And that's the first thing that's going to hurt is because how are you supposed to cl- affect the clubhouse? If he is so good in there, you want him around. But if it's going to impact how the team is playing, if you're going to take away someone that's so good at Brett Beatty, who we know is going to be a hitter, and the the team is going to feed off of his energy, what are you supposed to do? But at some point in time, you have to make the big boy decision and push at least Escobar to the bench. Well, yeah, Escobar, Pete, can have a very valuable role on this team without being the starting third baseman. He can be that super utility guy. He can play second base. You can stick him in the outfield. We know he's a better right-hand hitter. That's at least what his history last year showed. And that's the Met weakness. Despite Tommy Pham's really good Sunday, Escobar would probably be your preferred option to DH against left-handed pitching. So I'm not a believer that Beatty coming up here and becoming the third baseman should be the end of Eduardo Escobar. Uh, I was giving this a little bit of thought because I know there's roster gymnastics that are involved in this. We went through it the entire spring training. And that is, if you're not carrying an extra bat, who's off this team? Is it Tim LaCastro? Do you just view that stolen base threat off the bench as too much of a luxury? The other thought, the other thought, and I'm just throwing it out there. We're thinking out loud, everybody. Don't attack me here. If somebody in an emergency can play shortstop, Luis Guillerme has another option where you can send him down because the value in Guillerme is obviously his great defense. We all understand that, but he's also the only guy capable of playing shortstop as a backup. If he goes down for Beatty, could Brett Beatty play a few innings at shortstop? Could Eduardo Escobar play a few innings at shortstop? Could Jeff McNeil play a few innings at shortstop? Trust me. No is the answer. (laughs) I know that. I think if Lindor ever had an injury, you would very quickly call up Guillerme and get a backup up here. But that's one option because for the most part, Pete, Lindor's playing every day, every single day. I don't know if you would ever feel comfortable for a few innings or even a game having Escobar play short or McNeil play short or Beatty play short. But it does, if you want LeCastro up here and you want to get Beatty in a roll up here, that's one thing you could think about. Luis Guillerme does have options to be sent down to AAA. And, and listen, I made a point early on in the offseason saying that maybe they could actually trade Guillerme. I know that you hate that idea. That's ridiculous. I, I, I get that. But that's the problem that the Mets actually have right now is they have a lot of major league ready players and they don't have enough roster spots. Whereas I look around the MLB and I see teams that are desperate for for bench spots, but desperate for, for starting position players. The Mets have a surplus in the bullpen even. But they're going to need all those guys. Guys are going to get hurt. So I wouldn't have the confidence to trade. I'd rather store them in AAA and have guys ready to contribute when I need them. The one thing I don't want from Epler is don't make the move to Beatty and Vientos or Vientos when you're losing games. Right now, if you believe Bay, and they're not going to do it after four games, I fully understand that. I think at the minimum, barring injury, we're talking May. It's not happening in April. Like the, he would look like such a schmuck to say he needs more seasoning, and then five days later recall him unless there's an injury. If there's an injury, that's the game changer. 
Well, we got three more games coming up against the Brewers. Uh, we're going to see another lefty in this series. Wade Miley is going to make his first start of the year coming up on Tuesday. So we'll see another example of how Buck handles facing left-handed pitching. A big challenge on Wednesday against Corbin Burns. Three games against the Brewers. And then the home opener at City Field on Thursday against the Miami Marlins. So very exciting stuff. Obviously, we appreciate you reaching out. I've gotten a bunch of emails. We'll do more emails on the next Rico. Unfortunately, when you pull over on the side of the road to do a Rico, you can't have it go on forever because at some point I got to start driving again to go home. But do email. We will do uh, uh, read a lot of these emails on the pod coming up shortly. The Rico B at gmail.com. We'll have another podcast right after Wednesday's game, or at least at some point after Wednesday's game to recap the Milwaukee series. And maybe we'll give you a bonus Rico before that. You never know when we'll feel up for it. But we appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.